0: This is a Balanced Brain Podcast with your hosts, Melanie Nicholson and Sean Clift.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Balanced Brain Podcast. My name's Sean Clift. I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Melanie Nicholson. Melanie, how are you?
2: I'm great, thanks, Sean. How are you going?
1: Look, really great. It's, um, it was great to catch up with you there last month at the Gold Coast. So how's things back at Newcastle?
2: Yeah, it's raining and it's yeah not as sunny as the Gold Coast. <laughs>
1: So I'm back here in Brisbane and I'm actually joined by your sister Heather Nicholson. Heather, welcome along. Thank you. Now, I want to start out by saying Heather, Heather's a midwife, so I just want to ask you, you know, like you Nicholson sisters, you know, you love going out, you love getting dressed up, but tell me, what's what are you wearing at the at the hospital to be a midwife these days?
0: At one point, we were wearing just the normal mask that everyone's been wearing out with restrictions in restaurants and, you know, shops and things. But um, a couple of months ago, we went to Tier 3, which means we had to wear the N95 mask, which we were fitted for individually, um, according to our face shape, um, and they're a lot different. I find it difficult to breathe in them. They form a complete suction around your your face, and then the goggles over the top as well. So basically you've got, you know, a quarter of your face showing, which is your eyes, which are covered by goggles as well. Wow. Wow, that sounds... So,
2: Heather, tell us, tell the audience how that's impacted on how you practice as a midwife and the philosophy of a midwife.
0: Well, I think, look, everyone probably is having a different experience every midwife, but for me... I'm very observant observant, and I like to, to read a woman's face and how she's feeling and I do like her to see my face as well so that I can provide that warmth and empathy, empathy that you need being a midwife in that role. Um, so I've found it particularly difficult um, even just initially when I meet a woman, developing rapport. Like, I mean, what's that old saying, the, the eyes are the window to the soul? Yeah. Um, I found that not to be true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that I've actually experienced it, I've realized I actually need to see a woman's whole face to gauge her, how she's feeling. Um, so that's been, um, yeah, it's been really confronting for me. And I've found that part particularly challenging when I'm providing care and not only just for me and the woman that I'm caring for, but also her support. Support team, her partner, her husband. While the women don't have to wear them while they're in active labour, their partners and support team do. Do. So I found that difficult because I can't read the partner or the husband um, how he's feeling. And my role is not to just support a woman, but also her support team and reassure them that everything that is happening in that room is normal. Yeah, and That's that what does. makes it really
1: difficult. Yeah, you know, and. You can't read those emotions. It's an emotional time for everyone in the room, isn't Absolutely.
0: it? Absolutely. And and as a and I always um, put myself in her position. If I'm going through something as prophetic as as birth, birthing my baby, do I want to see my midwife's face? Um, I she wants to be able to read me too. I think that's the most important thing. Is that she gets that reassurance just from from a look? Yeah. Just from looking at me from my life yeah because it's it's
1: stressful mm. time so you know you really you know people that are you know going through that process they want to be able to look to, to the professional staff around them and know that everything's under control and everything's calm but that that becomes a little bit more difficult when you, mm. you can't see people's facial expressions and things mm. like that isn't it
0: yeah absolutely but i think to some degree they were they're obviously prepared for it that that's what needs to be happen and from the i mean the duration of their pregnancy, they were obviously subjected to restrictions in their own personal life and out in the shops and, you know, going about their daily life. So they were obviously used to wearing that mask as well. So I guess for them coming into the hospital, it was just something that had to happen.
2: Yeah. And I understand, Heather, that uh, during the last couple of years, at various times, partners haven't been allowed into the hospital for appointments or is that also during the birthing process or what what's happening? there i know it's different in different states um,
0: usually usually the support team um may be restricted during antenatal appointments so we keep that to a minimum but there's we were always only allowed to, to support people with a woman when she's birthing that's pre-covid that's how it is to just to obviously keep um the number of people inside a birthing room limited so that a yeah. woman feels safe and she can, you know, it's too overwhelming to have too many people in there as well. And at one stage that was cut back to one support person, um, which was usually their partner. But there, were, that, I guess, sort of the cascade effect of that was that women that were having their second, third, fourth babies had children at home. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't have family in Brisbane to care for those children while your partner came in and supported you in labour, that's when women felt really alone and isolated. Um, yeah, so
2: just on that, Heather, I was reading a, um, a peer-reviewed study about Australian women's experiences receiving maternity care during COVID. And that was the major thing that came out was how alone they felt during the process but there were also some women who reported that it was really good not to have a huge amount of visitors in the room, and mm. yeah, just there, there, there. was, there's always positive and negatives of things, oh. but it was more yeah. that face-to-face interaction that they missed, and yeah, that feeling of yeah, just doing it alone, and
0: just having it so clinical. Mm. But I mean, from my experience. I didn't really have a situation where a woman was birthing alone. It's usually afterwards, postnatally, when they've had a baby, uh, had their baby, and you're right, um, some women did report that it was great that they didn't couldn't have visitors up on the ward, you know, so they could just be with their baby and their partner without the, the onslaught of visitors that normally happens. But then at the same time... Um, different cultures for instance Indian and Asian cultures it's part of their tradition or culture to have their mother or family come over from India or Asia to stay for a month or two after a baby is born well obviously that couldn't happen due to COVID restrictions so I did see a lot of isolation there because they may not have had any family in in brisbane um so there were no support networks so we definitely had an increase of you know things like social work referrals um increased anxiety and depression mostly related to isolation oh. and not having those support networks really readily available to them
1: what about people from sort of outback and regional areas how how did it affect them
0: um well Where I work is a tertiary hospital, so we will quite often get women in from rural areas that are either flown in. So, but that they're usually to some degree that isolation is already there because they leave their family on, say, these big properties to come in, especially if they've had, um, if they're a high risk pregnancy or they have a reason where they need to come into the hospital earlier. So, I feel like. I can't really comment too much on that because they've already got that isolation there from, from yeah. where they live. Yeah. I, but I mean, I, I think it also came down to living in different States. So grandparents, um, you know, obviously living in new South Wales or Melbourne, they couldn't come up, yeah. um, you know, to, to Queensland or Brisbane to help support um, the family either. So that was, that's the biggest thing that I noticed during that time was not having access to any support networks yeah and you said you know like that would that had
2: you observed depression and and isolation with that and i guess that reflects the broader community over the last two years and also what's been happening prior to covid so it's just kind of amplified what was already happening in society i guess and then you're bringing a new baby into the world so that would be really tough. Heather, tell us about how you're managing the constant changes in rules and regulations and how that impacts on your practice, like caring for women.
0: How do you manage that? Well, um, I'm fortunate enough to work in a continuity of care model, which means that the, um, the women I care for have me. Uh, we have a talk, actually a small team of midwives. There's three of us. Um, So we provide care to the same woman throughout her whole pregnancy. So I think that we're in a pretty great position to be able to advocate and provide for our women because we've known them for that long period. And I think that that gives them some kind of reassurance during these times. So
1: Heather, when, when does that first meeting happen? Is it how how early in the pregnancy does that happen?
0: Uh, well, usually once their pregnancy is confirmed, they have to go to their GP and get a referral, um, into our program, and there's a wait list. Okay. so we there's not enough, um, continuity of care midwives, um, so they go on a wait list, and then our job is to we get given the wait list and we call them, okay, and recruit them as such, and then they so I can. Each midwife can take three to four women a month. That's our caseload, one during each week of the month.
1: So you're meeting a woman very early in the pregnancy? Um,
0: usually she has to see her GP um, and then we see them from about 14 weeks. Right, right okay.
1: So and, you, you yeah. must build up a really good rapport with them over the time.
0: We do. There is a big gap between booking in, so we'll see them between 14 and 16 weeks and then they see their GP around 20 weeks. Right. Um, and then from 24 weeks, they see us for the rest of their pregnancy on a regular schedule. So yes, we definitely get to know them very well. Some women under our care, we don't. Um, It just is whether they can come to their appointments or not at our specific locations that we have that we run our clinics. So sometimes they'll get a run of not seeing their main midwife and seeing a couple of the other midwives in the team. But there's only three of us, so they do get to know us all pretty well.
1: Yeah, so back to, yeah. back to Melanie's question. How, how are the changes affected things?
0: I think for me personally, I don't think my practice has changed. Um, I've been able to facilitate and advocate for women the same way um, that I did pre-COVID. Um, and provide that environment for them.
2: And, uh, Heather, we were just talking about, you know, from your experience, there's a a mini baby boom going on up in Queensland. (laughs) I guess that's not reflected yet in the stats, but maybe that's all the people moving up there and having babies.
0: Well, I don't think it's evidenced yet that there is a baby boom. Um, But from my perspective, um, I have never seen the hospital so busy that I, as particularly uh since about january what's january last year yeah it's been non-stop
1: wow people got busy hey
0: yeah <laughs> yeah but that could i mean it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what it is yes there seems to be more babies being born but Also, um, is it more pressure on staff? Is there lack of staff because they have to be off in isolation? Like, does the hospital seem more busy because Mm -hmm. of those um, influencing factors? I have to question that. But at the same time, yeah, from my perspective, (laughs) I've never seen so many births.
2: Wow. Well, tell us about the stress of staff shortages and things like that, Heather, like, because it's still continuing to be a difficult environment to work in uh, because people still have to isolate if they test positive or if they, you know, they have the flu. So how is that going with the ongoing stress of that?
0: I think because they work a little bit separately to the main sort of... um team that are on shift so we work on core within our team so we manage our load between the three of us Um, but we also work obviously with and direct with them with the main midwives so yeah sometimes some shifts are so short you know either midwives are in isolation or they're sick or the ratio of midwives to women coming in and spontaneous labor is greater than the amount of staff that we have yeah that's just what I've observed and so, I guess the added stress of lots of midwives taking extra hours um, and working double shifts and and fatigue um, you know I've experienced that myself where you just keep going sometimes because that's what you do <laughs> you love your job and but then yeah there comes a time where you have to say that enough and i, I and I, i'm not sure that when doing that enough either it's mm. well, real burnout for sure well, yeah you know?
1: weren't you just put on fatigue leave
0: um just yesterday um we just had a run of burst and yeah so we thought you we'd get you in for the podcast
2: Heather because you're I've been on fatigue leave you've been <laughs> a bit <of> a holiday
0: <laughs> I mean it sounds extreme but it's actually not it just means that you know you, you're too tired really to continue and you've got to go home for a for a good break and sleep before you're able to come back again it's not like days at a time or anything yeah Uh, everybody in the hospital system you know has it or is entitled to it at at, at some stage yeah yeah but in your situation you got told
2: (laughs) and i would assume that's a lot for medical staff. right they just keep going and until they go but and then someone taps you on the shoulder and sometimes you don't yeah see it in yourself that you're just done
0: yeah absolutely but i feel like it depends. It's your work ethic as well. You you don't want to let your women down yeah. either. I think that's what's difficult as well. Yeah.
2: And, you know, I think for our listeners, it is a difficult environment at the moment, but something that you do that's very interesting at the hospital is, try to make it as natural as possible in terms of I think you've got water pools and you know you, you told me about the fairy lights they put up and tell us yeah. a little bit how so, so I think some people might still think it's quite clinical in a hospital but you know you've at your hospital you go a long way to making it as, as we much, have yeah we
0: have but I think I've seen that changing only just in the last couple of years yeah um yes we try and like We are a high-risk hospital, so we definitely have women birthing that are high-risk. So it can make it difficult at times because, obviously, you need, you know, the lighting on in the room and things like that. Um, That make it quite an overwhelming environment for a woman. But we now, yes, we have water birth pools or big baths in almost every birth suite um so depending on if the woman is low or high risk she can choose to have a water birth we dim the lights right down yes we have fairy lights we encourage them to bring in um, their own playlists we have bluetooth speakers in every room for them to connect to we have aromatherapy diffusers and encourage them to bring their own oils in you know their own food snacks things like that so Mm. quite often um if you get there before the woman arrives, she's told you she's in labour, you can set the room up to have the lighting and, you know, a little bit of music playing and That's amazing. have some oil. So mm. they walk in. You know, it's a smooth transition from home to car to birthing mm. room. Um, and it's lovely to see. Even we've got birth boxes that have, you know, a- affirmations that we can oh, put, yeah. up and, put up on the walls. And, yeah, it's quite lovely actually, like, it's really nice to see so i think yes sometimes people have this perception that it's this big clinical birthing room but we're it, we're definitely changing things for the better it's so, really nice to see well,
1: that's amazing so yeah. you, you, we're all about the same age what how how much different would it have been say in the 70s when we were born compared yeah. to what it is now
0: oh like I can't even imagine. Well, a lot of forceps (laughs) we use. (laughs) Legs in stirrups, unnatural birthing positions. You know, even when women, you know, quite often, like we just leave women alone to adopt the positions that they would like that are natural to them and intuitive in labour. And quite often that is in the shower, sitting on the fit ball, leaning over the bed on all fours. We have bean bags, we have floor mats, we have fit balls. Yeah, we've got everything. So to facilitate what they want to do,
1: and in most cases now, the the partners are. are- uh around for that process whereas probably in the 70s the partners were at the pub having a couple of beers yeah maybe.
0: absolutely yeah <laughs> and they're very involved too yeah. yeah it's really lovely to see it's very interesting when you get to observe the dynamics between a couple when they come in in labor because quite often I'll look after a woman for for her whole pregnancy and not meet her partner oh, due yeah. to various reasons work and that sort of thing and then you know they come in together and yeah it can be um a very rewarding experience obviously to watch that happen
2: yeah and what's some of the most challenging parts of how you are able to work within a hospital because I know ultimately I think for most midwives the dream is to go out on your own right and have your own business not, I think that's quite common for I yes not for everyone
0: I don't no. think. I think I'm learning that everyone every midwife is a, a little bit different yeah they either like structure and um the hospital system um being a bit more clinical or they are more have the more natural approach yeah which you can you know that can be facilitated in hospital if you work in a continuity of care model um and even outside of that like i am admire many of the the midwives that i work with they are, we are a massive support network yes there's definitely you know the odd Relationship where you don't quite click or it's not supportive, but it is rare to be honest. With a particularly now in these times, like we, it does actually feel like we are one big family. We've always got each other's back. We're always trying to help each other. um I've got some wonderful mentors at that hospital. That yeah.
1: So, so how does that happen? What do, what do you think that is? Is it do you think it's that people have a Similar kind of personality, or a similar kind of nature, or is it a, is it a values thing? why do you think that there's that sort of um, you know camaraderie that happens, or is it a, is it people working together in a in a crisis environment? Is that is that? How well, it no, works? I
0: think even pre COVID it was there as well. I mean, ultimately, midwife means with woman, and that's what we're there for is to support women. Yep, um, and that's the common goal that we have. And yeah. I guess that's what unites us. Right. Okay. Yeah.
2: Now, Heather, I remember, um, and I remember thinking this is when I knew it was your calling, like pretty early on in your career, you got to go to Papua New Guinea and experience been a midwife midwifery experience over there can you tell the listeners a a bit about what it was like in Papua New Guinea that time because I remember seeing some of the photos that came back and like you look so happy you look like you're in your element (laughs) and I know you really enjoyed that trip and yeah with all its challenges it ended up being a really I think it really cemented what it meant for you to be a midwife.
0: Yeah I think well I ended up going in my final year um of my midwifery degree it was only for um a couple of weeks but yeah, it was life-changing for me. I think it really highlighted that just observing the way the different culture, I actually really think it was really similar to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, where it's, you know, it's obviously a hands-off approach and they're just so resilient. Like I just watch women birth a baby and get up and, and put a baby in the cot and walk off an hour later from you know up to the birthing suite or home or um so it was really interesting but really our role there so in Papua New Guinea um they're not midwives they're called village birth attendants so quite often um these women have done more births than qualified midwives you know they work they're out in the um so I was in the highlands in Garoka um so that's all they have you know these women that have been helping birth and support women for for years but they were also lacking in some skills obviously that we were there to also teach them neonatal resuscitation how to resuscitate a baby Um, postpartum hemorrhages that women may have how to um, manage that because these things weren't happening and they were causing maternal deaths because they didn't know and didn't have the skills to manage that. So I guess it sort of highlighted how lucky we are as well to have access to that, those skills and facilities that we do have in Australia, but that they didn't. So, yeah, it was a really amazing experience to be able to pass on those skills and teach those women and also, um, you know, pick up some pretty incredible um, skills from them as well some, you know, good old-fashioned... So what what were some of those old-fashioned skills then? Well, really just leaving birth alone. Mm. <laughs> I think that's what our main problem is, is there's too many interventions. And sometimes they definitely need to happen um, when birth is high risk, when mm. women have a background medical problems or they're pregnancy-related. But, yeah, you know, I think um, the number one sort of lesson is that we must... Leave birth alone; that it is normal until proven otherwise.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, it's really yeah, and, and you know, like even when I was reading about the philosophy, because there's an international philosophy of midwifery care, and it was it really went into you know principles of justice, equity, respect for human dignity, um, building self confidence in the birth process, and midwives promote and protect women and newborns' health and rights. So it's very strong philosophy underpinning midwives. And um, I think we had a little joke that uh, some people, maybe maybe some older generations that you, that you, remember we were saying that they they think you just stand at the end of the bed and catch the baby? Yeah. That's what a midwife does.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Not going mean, to mention I maybe think... some older men in our family. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, obviously, um, yeah, there is that perception. But, you know, pe- some some of the older generation, I guess, um, who don't know too much about it, I guess that it is a degree, you know, it's a a three-year full-time degree. And now midwives are becoming more multi-skilled than ever. Like particularly in our model of care, we have to actually – ensure that we are multi-skilled like being able to cannulate and take bloods and and suturing and and be water birth credentialed which is um a feat in itself really like that that that's a big um hoop to jump through for sure but yeah most of us um that's what we're aiming for is that we're all multi-skilled so we do a lot more than yeah just um help birth a baby. Yeah. So what's,
1: what's some of the processes that happen after the birth? What's, what's some of the things that you, you're responsible for and, and look after when the baby's born?
0: Well, usually we, as soon as a baby's born, they have immediate skin to skin on mum. Um, and that's uninterrupted for a good hour before we do anything. Weigh baby, um, give baby their immunizations if they're required. Um, any measurements or anything like that. So mum and baby are just left alone, skin to skin, breastfeeding, bonding. Yeah, that that's just what happens with every birth. Um, delayed cord clamping at, at birth as well, which means that we don't cut and clamp the cord until the cord has stopped pulsating and all the blood from the placenta has gone um, to baby. Um, Yeah. So, which has um, the evidence base of many but be- many benefits as well. Yeah. So that's and then with, they stay in the birthing suite usually for a fair few hours after baby's born, um, with their partner and yeah. And sometimes actually they can go home six hours after baby's born.
1: You're right. So yeah, right. Particularly
0: in our model of care, because yeah, we provide home visits after. So we. If they go home after six hours, we quite often um, go and visit them at home either the next day or the following day for for follow-up care as well.
1: It's an amazing system, isn't it? We are so lucky in Australia that we have that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the only reason why we wouldn't do the immediate skin-to-skin and the breastfeeding and bonding is obviously if baby is born um, and needing assistance, some oxygen or resuscitation, and, yeah, that's when we... Obviously, have to intervene and yeah, we clamp and cut the cord pretty quickly, um, yeah. and give get the baby the help that they need. So, so that can be difficult. That can be difficult, difficult for the mother, yeah, and and the parents definitely when that has to happen, that separation that occurs.
2: So obviously, you couldn't anticipate the last couple of years. I mean, I would say it's been a really tough time for everybody, but particularly. I I don't imagine when you were studying, when you've been practicing the last few years that you could see the last couple of years happening. What, what have you, at what point are you in your journey with midwifery? Like what have you learned particularly over the last two years during COVID and just the changes in practice, like uh, what's changed for you in terms of how you feel about midwifery, where you want to see it go? What's your hopes
0: well, I think even the first year that I started my degree, I knew not not so much my philosophy but I guess where my hopes were for my own midwifery career um and that really has been highlighted, I guess, in the last year, year or two i i I don't want to work in the hospital system, yeah as a midwife. I'd like to be out. Um, on my own with, with another group of like minded mid midwives um, providing care to women in that way. Low risk, yeah. I think. Uh, for me, even though it does give me, it is rewarding. Um, I think that the way that my career is going is not looking after high risk women in a tertiary hospital. Yeah. Okay. So I'm 100% sure about that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, it's definitely highlighted that for me in the last year or two. But at the same time, I'm privileged to be there and be helping women and advocating women to have the best birth experience they can within the hospital system as well. So what do you love about it? Tell us what's... (laughs)
1: What do you love about being I mean, a midwife? I mean,
0: it's so difficult, I think, sometimes because people ask me why I became a midwife. I don't think I can actually really pinpoint why. Um, I still remember being 14 at school and I don't know what we were doing. Obviously, something about our wishes in career. And I actually remember writing down, I would want to be a midwife, which is really interesting that, it came full circle. I didn't really start studying until I was 34. I worked in property valuation in the federal government for 12 years, which wow. is completely different. It's a big change. But I finished high school when I was 16, year 12. Um, I was just, I don't know what happened. Mum started me a little bit earlier because she obviously thought that I was smart. Um, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't I? But I think. Um, not, not only was I not in the right head space or mature enough at that age to go on to uni and really come out as a fully qualified midwife Mm -hmm. at 19 or 20, I think I'm a better midwife now or the best midwife that I can be from having had life experience and having my own children. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I don't think that makes you a better midwife because I work with many, many younger midwives that don't have children, and I look up to them. They're amazing. Yeah, wow. They are. Well, skills- midwifery was dominated
2: by single women in their thirties and forties. You know that never yeah. married or never that that was the midwife was the unmarried. Yeah woman really and no and had no children you know earlier on in the early century and
0: that's still there at the hospital some that have been midwives for 20 or 30 years yes absolutely some don't have children and and really that I just mean my personal experience is that I felt like that's when I was ready
1: yeah you were yeah Yeah. prepared Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely and I mean it really is although it can be difficult obviously working different shift hours and being on call and things like that it really is the most rewarding job yeah yeah it is amazing to support women to um reassure them to that birth is normal don't be fearful yeah it's just i do feel privileged to be there every day
2: and not many people can say that about their jobs, right? That they and that's why I was so proud when you graduated, because it's not it's not a job, it's a calling, really. Like, and it's you're birthing new life into the world, and yeah, I think even as difficult as it is at the moment, ultimately, at the end of the day, you're bringing new life into the world, and you're supporting Moon to do that, and and I think that's tough to beat in sense of a term of purpose, right? Absolutely. Like that's a very purposeful
0: job. But, I can't yeah. imagine doing anything else.
1: Well, I think that's a great way to end, Melanie. Yeah. It's, a,
0: yeah.
1: it's so great to get your insight, Heather, about being a midwife, particularly being a midwife over the last couple of years, been a very challenging time. Thanks so much for joining yeah. us.
2: Thank you so Thank much, Sis. Sis. Thanks,
1: Sis. <laughs> right. Good to see you, Melanie.
2: See you guys. Bye. Bye, everyone.